Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Sick and tired of being pillaged by a ruthless gang of bandits, a small Mexican village of farmers on the brink of poverty decide to fight back. The village elders send three of the farmers in the hope of purchasing guns with the little money that they had gathered. Instead, they end up recruiting seven gunmen to help them. That's essentially the plot of the 1960 film Magnificent Seven. Remember that? They had a cast of well-known actors back then. Yul Briner, he was one of my favorite. Uh, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, and James Coburn. If you haven't seen it, you might remember the very well-known theme song used in the Marlboro ads in the 70s. Marlboro is a cigarette brand. (laughs) And this Marlboro man who smokes that cigarette turns into this macho man. Remember that? Those uh, who are old and senior and distinguished in our ranks will remember this ad all too well when ads were allowed on free-to-air television. In 2016, just out of interest, they did a remake of the movie, but I reckon it's not as great as the original. We see something similar here in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, as we continue with our sermon series on Luke's gospel. Here we see Jesus delegating his work to 72 disciples, in addition to the 12 that he had commissioned earlier back in Luke chapter 9. In some of your Bible translations, the number uh, is 70. A difference in number depends on which Greek manuscript tradition of Luke that your translation uses, but slightly better manuscript evidence favors the choice of 72. The 72 and the 12 were very ordinary folks and not in the same league as the Magnificent Seven. But they were followers of the Magnificent Jesus. The one thing, though, they had in common with the Magnificent Seven was this, that they were on a very important mission. They were on a very important mission. Their their objectives were similar to the ones given to the Twelve, to the power and authority of Jesus working in pairs, they were to drive out all demons, to heal the sick, and to preach the arrival of God's rule or the kingdom of God in every town and place that Jesus would later visit. Jesus gives them extra instructions that's similar but more detailed than those in Luke chapter 9. And the first one is quite unsettling. Jesus says to them, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Go, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Sounds like a suicide mission, isn't it? That sounds like a suicide mission, I think. If I were one of the 12, I'm thinking, this is not going to work out well, being sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So what did Jesus mean by it? Let Let me suggest three things. Number one, The 72 are to expect opposition and hostility. They're to expect opposition and hostility. Not everyone is going to receive them. Not everyone is going to welcome them with open arms. Number two, they're to fight wolves, not by being like wolves, but by being lamb-like. They're to fight wolves, not 
by being like wolves, but by being lamb-like, by taking after the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You might say it this way, that whatever, in whatever way they're attacked, they're to respond in the opposite manner. For instance, the answer to criticism is not criticism. The answer to criticism is perhaps truth spoken in gentleness and wisely. And that's hard to do because when you criticize, you want to return fire with fire. You want to respond to criticism with same like criticism. You want to respond harshness with harshness. But Jesus is saying, you will not win by being, you will not win over the wolves by being wolf-like. The only way you can win by, is by, being, by responding in the opposite spirit. So when people are harsh with you, the response there is to be gentle. The answer to pride is humility. The answer to hate and fear is love. And thirdly, being a lamb points to a state of dependency and powerlessness. They're to trust God to protect them. They're to trust God to provide for them. And in their context, God's provision and God's protection would come through the people who welcome them and their message, since the worker deser deserves his wages in verse 7. Hence, they're not to carry a purse that is a money bag, a traveler's bag, or sandals, which doesn't mean that they're to walk barefoot, but they're not to take an extra pair. They're to go as they are. They're not to be distracted and salute people along the way. Jesus is not telling the disciples to be rude, but he's telling them to remain single-minded on their mission. Next, they're to look for and connect with a household or person of peace who would welcome them. They're to stay there long enough to plant the gospel before moving on to the next town or to the next home, with the hope that they would become the means of the gospel spreading into their community. And the 72 are to receive hospitality gratefully. It's offered to them, to the household, a person, a peace who welcome them. They're to pronounce a blessing of peace, an invocation of God's will over, over them. If a town will not receive them, they're to shake the dust off their feet and move on. What is that about? There was a rabbinic idea that the dust of Gentile lands was defiled, and strict Jews would remove it from their shoes upon their return to Jewish territory. For Jesus, the act that he prescribed there was symbolically a declaration that the Israelites who rejected Jesus' message of shalom through the 72 were no better than the Gentiles. They were in reality rejecting the very message of the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus said in verse 10, in verse 16, chapter 10, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And such a rebellious response has serious consequences. And Jesus singles out the villages of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for special mention in this regard, which are all three towns are, are eight kilometers 
from within eight kilometers from each other on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Why did he single them out? Because that's where Jesus performed most of his miracles. That area was where Jesus performed most of his miracles. Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum, Jesus said. Woe is an expression of deep regret, of inexpressible sadness commonly uttered at a funeral. It is as if Jesus was warning the people there, I mourn at the hardness of your heart that will lead to grave consequences unless you repent. The judgment of God upon them will be more severe than Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile cities with reputations for evil because they had witnessed the same miracles. Had they witnessed the same miracles and heard the same teaching, they would have repented, Jesus argued. To whom much is given, much is required. The mission as we read on, is a success, a huge success. The 70 returned, filled with excitement and joy at the power and authority that they had over demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus shares in their joy by confirming that Satan had suffered a notable defeat as a result of their ministry. But he reminds them that he is the source of that authority and power, lest it gets into their head. I have given you, a power, given you authority to trample on serpents, on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. The less than magnificent 72 became magnificent only because of Jesus' power and authority. But as amazing as that is, the joy is nothing compared to the fact that they are in relationship with God through Jesus and his message. That is the real cause for joy and ongoing joy. The Greek word, Greek word translated as rejoice is better translated as feeling of triumphant jubilation and elation. Rejoice that your names are in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice that you are in relationship with God as a result of believing in me and my message. It's, it's, it's a cause worthy of, of jubilation and elation. And I wonder what we're like with the fact that we are with our salvation. Do you take it for granted? Is that something that you you're deeply grateful for every day that you are in relationship with Jesus, that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life? Or are you quite ho-hum about it? I can be, and I know we are from time to time. We lose sight of how precious the gift of relationship we got with God that we have. Thanks be to God for this amazing gift that we have been given, that we are in relationship with Jesus. There are many things that are, that are reasons for joy, but all of that is nothing compared with the joy of our salvation. That is Jesus' point here. And he underscores this in verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure, that I am the way, that I am the truth, 
that I am the life. Simple message, but a life-changing one to those who believe in that message, to those who put their faith in that message. He makes that point again in verse 23 and 24. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Oh, saints, are you glad, are you deeply grateful that you see what you see today, that you hear what you have heard? The three main questions we want to uh, briefly explore explore as we consider how the passage applies to us. The questions are, what is God's mission? What is my role within God's mission? And what does mission look like in our daily lives? Those three questions again. What is God's mission? What is my role within God's mission? What does mission look like in daily life? We're going to tackle the first two questions this morning, and we will explore the third question over five weeks, starting next Sunday, when we take a detour from Luke, as I said earlier, when we begin our new series titled Frontline Sunday. So the first question, what is God's mission? I reckon the best person to answer that question is Jesus himself. And we find it in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. Here's God's mission. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's mission for him back then is now our mission. Jesus said, In John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me to do God's mission, to complete God's mission, to act on God's mission, I'm sending you out now to do the same in your generation, in your context at this time that you are living in. We also see that God's mission is broad in its scope and it's multifaceted. While there is no question that the gospel is the power of, God of, power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, we need to pay attention to the fact that the Greek word for salvation, sozo, is an all-encompassing word that means so much more than just the forgiveness of sins. That means so much more than just getting a ticket to heaven, if I may put it, put it crudely. It also refers to God's longing to God's provision to bring wholeness to the spiritual, psychological, social, and physical dimensions of life in the here and now, even though the full measure of it will not take place until Christ's complete and total reign when he returns. Salvation is not to be understood as otherworldly either, meaning that we're saved to leave planet Earth and go to heaven, and therefore we don't need to think about how to best steward and care for our environment. So God's mission then is broad and diverse. It can be about living among the poor, 
It can be about campus ministry. It can be about poverty or debt alleviation. It can be about social justice ministry to the refugees, to victims of domestic violence, church planting, reaching unreached people groups, putting the spotlight on, on human and sex trafficking and so on and so forth. It can be where we live. It can be where we work. It can be where we, where we volunteer from Monday to Saturday. God's mission is wherever the good news of Jesus is needed, be it in word or deed. It is a mistake to think that we have to choose between word or deed. One without the other diminishes both. God's mission, therefore, is like a symphony that involves a diversity of artists, as it were, with their variety of gifts and talents. And therefore, each one of us at Windsor Road has a part to play. Each one of us here has a part to play in God's mission as we consider the second question. What is my role within God's mission? Notice after Jesus set apart 72 individuals for God's mission, he said to them in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Firstly, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Remember, Jesus started off with how many? Twelve. Twelve. But at this point, in Luke chapter 10, he has 72 more. That is a growth of 600%, right? That is a growth of 600%. Even so, for Jesus, workers are still few. The demands of the harvest field simply outweigh the supply of workers. 2,000 years later, Jesus is still saying the same thing to us. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There is more work to be done. Don't rest on your prayer laurels. And what drives Jesus, according to Matthew's account, It's not numbers, it's not growth, it's not fame, it's not ego, but unadulterated compassion. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 37. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every diseases and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, they were helpless, they were oppressed, they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Harvest is plentiful. The needs are enormous. But the people to meet those needs are still lacking. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, God himself, to send out worker harvest, to work, send out workers for the harvest. And often when we pray this, we think of other people, don't we? All right? The last time you prayed that prayer, were you thinking of yourself? The Lord, I pray with all of my earnest. Tomorrow I'm actually going to fast and pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into the harvest field. You weren't thinking of yourself, were you? You were thinking that God would send somebody else. Not me, because I have a full-time job. 
Not me, because I have, yeah, I have other things. I, I'm just, I just don't feel called. I just don't have to tap on my shoulders, Mark, that I'm called to be involved in, in harvest work. But I am praying that God will raise up a people for the harvest field. But I'm not one of those workers. I want to suggest to you very strongly that one of the harvest workers that we're praying for is actually you. And when we think of the harvest field, we often think of an overseas context, don't we? A church ministry context. There's a short-term mission trip. The truth is, it is more. When we think of workers, we often think in terms of missionaries. We think of pastors. We think of those who are called into full-time ministries. We think of those who have or need to attend theological colleges. The problem is not that this way of understanding Jesus' statement is not the truth, but rather it is not the whole truth. Workers are still few because the harvest field is way more plentiful than what missionaries, pastors, and those in full-time ministry can manage. Even at theological colleges all around the world, experience a 600% increase of student intake in graduates for the next five years, there's still not enough workers. There's still not enough workers. That's because pastors and missionaries have no way of reaching the people you are in contact with, nor are they the most effective, peop the most effective people to do it. Do you see that? Even if worldwide, in a, on a worldwide scale, Bible colleges with a C of 600% intake, 600% of graduates graduating and going into full-time ministry, that still represents a small percentage of Christians. A small percentage. So what are the rest of Christians are doing? What are the rest of the body of Christ is doing? It's not that we haven't got the call the call has been issued, is that we're not acting on the call. We're not acting on Jesus' mission to be harvest workers. While God's harvest field is out of reach for missionaries and pastors in your front line, in your context, it is not out of reach for you. So this means that when Jesus asks us to pray for harvest workers to be sent, he's not thinking of some Christians only, He's not thinking of the magnificent seven, as it were, but every single Christian, all of us. I'm calling all of us, and I'm praying that all of us will experience a paradigm shift in our thinking and our attitude, in that we need to see we are all harvest workers God has already sent, to channel our passions, to channel our gifts and talents he's given us for his use and for his glory in the places we work, in the places we live, via all of our relational networks, through all of our relational networks, be they casual, professional, familial, or otherwise. The question and the challenge is, will we go? Will we go? You have been sent. Each one of us has been sent and commissioned by God. To finish, I'd like us to watch and hear Merle's inspiring testimony, which passed away since this interview was done. God's mission is ultimately about stories like Merle's. 
I was first aware of God as a little girl of five when my mother was a very Christian woman and took me off to her Sunday morning meetings. Um, it was a very humble um, little group that they met, but I went along with my mother. So I would say I was always aware of God, but certainly not overly aware as I grew older. But it was a very strict religion which my mother had started me on, where there was no joy, no laughter, no dancing or music, nothing to make anyone happy. So it was a very strict religion. And at the age of 17, when I committed a very bad sin, I decided that that was the end of religion for me, that I was no longer going to even try. I refused to think about God. And any time that I did, I pushed those thoughts very much to the back of my mind because I just decided that I was a real sinner and that I would sin now as much as it was possible to do, which I did for the next 60 years. When I first married, my husband, who'd been brought up a very strict Lutheran, did ask me to go to church with him and he wanted the children to be christened and uh, confirmed and Sunday school, etc. And I flatly refused to go to anything. I would not go to a church service and I would not go to the children's christenings, which he did go to. And I feel now that perhaps if I had been a little bit more inclined to go along to church with him, it may have made a big difference to our marriage and also to his life. Certainly there were, there were occasions when there was a little bit of guilt, but not very much. And I was certainly not the slightest bit afraid of the life that I was leading. Why am I where I am today is because I was absolutely terrified after I had a health problem in 06. And I became completely fearful because I thought God is now going to do terrible things to me and this is going to be my punishment for all the wickedness that I have done in the past 60 years. And I was quite convinced that dreadful things were going to happen to me, that God would see that that would happen. And I could not get the fear out of me. I was absolutely petrified, morning, noon and night. I could not, I was consumed completely with fear. And then in the following year, 07, at Easter time, my son invited me to an Easter service. And it wasn't the first time that I'd been invited. He had invited me many times before for a church service at Easter, Christmas, Mother's Day, something special. He'd hardly have the words out of his mouth before I would say, no thank you, not interested in churches. At this particular time when he asked me, I thought, well, I couldn't be more miserable than what I am, so I'll go along to church for no other reason than to please Brad, my son. And so I went along to church on Good Friday, a sombre service, and I was in a very sombre mood. And I certainly went through the gates to this church saying, well, I won't be coming again, so I can manage today. I'm not the slightest bit interested except to please Brad, so I'll just be here today and that'll be it. Well, that was the day Stu spoke about 
was the day Stu spoke about guilt, regrets, shame and fear. And I felt those words were especially for me. It was almost as though God had asked Stu to speak those words that day to touch my heart. I understood. The, I felt that the sins were forgiven. The slate had been wiped clean and that I could start again. In what way did I change? Well, I no longer wished to have parties and all the worldly things that I had enjoyed, the things of the flesh that had given so much pleasure. I no longer wanted those things. They did not interest me anymore. I felt close to God. I felt at ease. I felt, I felt, I felt comfortable. I felt hopeful. I felt at peace. And I knew that my life changed. I felt absolutely wonderful. I felt so peaceful, so close to God, so such a different person entirely different person, as though the old me had gone and a new me was there. And all I wished for then, that God would spare me for more years so that I could perhaps do something that would be worthwhile. I, I think the 60 years that I led, I, I think they were wasted years. And I'm so sad about that. There was so much that I could have done in those 60 years that would have been wonderful for other people. It would have been something for my children to look up to. It would have been a guide for my children. But instead of that, I wasted those 60 years by just giving myself over to being a slave to sin. If my health would allow it, I would, I would love to do lots of things. I would especially love to be able to speak to people who are lost like I was, who are lonely and lost, and that would um, love to speak about the Bible, because I believe I didn't even understand about the, the crucifixion and what Jesus went through for all of us. Well, I didn't even realize that Brad was praying for me. I had no idea that Brad was, but he did say the night of my testimony after I'd been baptised and he had prayed for me for 33 years and had, had given up almost. He said, I, I had almost, <coughs> pardon me, I had almost given up my mum after 33 years of praying for her. But obviously his prayers were answered. Not told in the clip, but for the rest of her life, Merle made it her number one priority to make her life count for Jesus in a way that is embodied by the words of a song I hope to teach us one day, Come to the Altar. The last two lines read, Bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Bear your cross as you wait for the crown and tell the world 
of the treasure you found. Her life was no longer hers, but her Lord Jesus and Savior, Lord Jesus. Her age was not a barrier to her longing to be on mission with and for Jesus. Let us pray. Our prayer is one that you taught us to pray, Jesus, not the Lord's Prayer, but the one that we just read about, both in Matthew and in Luke. The harvest is plentiful. There are a lot of merls out there who are lost, who do not know you, who have a wrong image of who you are, who have a wrong image of what Christianity is all about. It's just one of many. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The workers are few because we have, the majority of Christians have bought into a lie that only pastors, only missionaries, only those who have a special call on their lives are called to be involved in the harvest field. And the rest of us, we just give money. We just contribute financially. And aside from that, our role is passive. We just work from Monday to Friday. And then we come to church and do our bit for you. And then back out, living uh, a pretty... Uh, meaningless life in terms of gospel engagement. Father, I ask for a change of mindset. That you will work with us on this. That, Lord, you will transform our thinking, transform our attitude, and help us see that the harvest worker you told us to pray to be released into the harvest field is actually us. Is actually us. Not somebody else. And the harvest field is not necessarily in an overseas context, but it's in the context that you have placed us in. Places where we are presently in. Be it places where we're studying, be it places where we're working, be it places where we're living. Those are the contexts for fruitful ministry, to engage people like Merle's. I pray you will transform us. We commit this week to you and we ask that you will lead us and make the most of it. Make the most of the opportunities you give us for your glory and for your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.